All right, everyone. Praise the Lord. I know that was an amazing time of worship for me. I hope it was very encouraging for you. And this morning, we're going to continue our study of the amazing book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up at this time to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 today. And we're going to be discussing the topic of evangelism. Now, it's kind of interesting because for many people, they think of evangelism as being more of a New Testament thing, but it's really a biblical thing. Evangelism is something that God has always desired for his people. And in a sense, it's a natural outworking of who we are as human beings. There's actually scientific study that shows human beings are basically evangelists. Now, you don't have to necessarily get involved with reading scientific journals arguing for this, although they're out there and available and pretty well acknowledged, but all you have to do is go onto Facebook. If you go onto Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, you will see that human beings are evangelists that people are longing to share the good news of things that are happening in their lives. And the funny thing about social media is you get a really wide range of what kind of good news people are experiencing. For example, on the one hand, the more kind of major good news, you'll see people posting pictures of their engagement. Uh, hey, everyone, just wanted to share with you last night, I went with my girlfriend down to the, the beach and we've been dating for a few years and I got down on one knee and I proposed and we're getting married and this is going to be amazing. And so people share this good news. Notice how they don't want to just keep it to themselves. It's almost as though the, the thing itself isn't as good unless the good news is shared. But of course, on social media, we can go to the other extreme and people will post the good news of their lunch today at two o'clock. They'll have their picture of their turkey club sandwich with the bacon and the avocado and the mayonnaise and it's stacked nice and high with their, their home style fries and Cajun spice. And they'll take pictures of their meals, right? People will take pictures of their meals and instead of just eating it, instead of just going out to eat, eating your food, enjoying it, people want to evangelize. They want to share the good news of this amazing meal they're enjoying right now. And again, friends, while this can range from the serious to the trite, I think it says something about human nature. We are basically evangelists. And remember what that word evangelism means, because for some people, uh, it just sounds like a, a religious only thing, but it comes from uh, the Greek word euangelion. And euangelion just means good message, good message, good news. And we know as Christians that we are called to bring the good news. But what's very strange is even though as human beings, we are people who desire to share good news with others, sharing good news even completes our own joy, as well as inviting others in to share in it, and yet, for some reason, when it comes to the good news, with capital letters, the good news, when it comes to the good news of what God has done in Jesus, 
many people are hesitant to share that good news with others. Now, there's probably a variety of reasons as to why this happens. And the main point of today's message will not be to dive into all of those reasons as to why people don't share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. What I want to do today as we look at Exodus chapter 18 verses 1 through 12, I simply want to show you that you've been saved to share. You've been saved to share. And I want to unpack this text and show you how evangelism is both a supernatural and natural outworking of what God is doing in our lives. So with that said, let's go ahead and we'll read the text. Exodus 18, 1 through 12, we'll pray, and then we'll get into today's study. Exodus chapter 18, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel and his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now this morning and we just pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, we know that we cannot bring good news to others unless we receive good news for ourselves. Lord, I believe that not only have you done good things in the past, you are doing good things for your people now. That you have been faithful, not just the day we first believed, but you have been faithful every day ever since. Through all the ups and the downs, through the triumphs and through the failures, through the mountaintops and valley lows, Lord, you have been faithful. And you have been working in our lives to bring glory to the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray for any of us who are Christians this morning, who've received the good news, who have in the past shared the good news with others. 
But perhaps we've grown tired. Perhaps we've shared the good news and we were repaid with evil. Or we've been rejected so often that we take it personally and therefore we have grown silent. Lord, perhaps we have seen that there can be a cost to sharing the good news. That many do not receive the good news gladly, but some out of anger and bitterness and rage will actually attack anyone who shares the good news. So Lord, whatever the reason might be this morning for any of your people to no longer be evangelist, to share the good news of what God is doing through Jesus in their lives, Lord, that you would renew our joy in the gospel. You would grant us fresh insight and vision into your steadfast love and your faithfulness, your forgiveness, your kindness, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, I pray if there's anyone joining with us who has not received the gospel, Lord, I pray that it would come to them this morning truly as good news. Lord, we always know that the gospel will challenge our prior conceived beliefs. And many times that is extremely difficult to let go of. But Lord, I pray that you would show that you love us, that the gospel is evidence of God's love for us, and that what you offer us in the gospel is greater than anything we would leave behind in order to receive it. So Lord, I just pray for a blessing now over this study and that you would create in us a passion for the good news of Jesus. We pray this now in his name. Amen. All right, friends, so I'm excited about this passage, Exodus 18, 1 through 12. Again, as I said earlier, many times when people hear the word evangelism, they don't think of the Old Testament. They just think of the New Testament as though evangelism is some newer idea. But the matter of fact is that evangelism was always God's intended vocation for his people. God never intended that his chosen ones, be that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or the apostles in the New Testament, no matter who it was, it was never God's intention that we should receive the good news of God for ourselves and then hide it, suppress it, put it under a basket, don't let it shine out. But friends, as I've said, for some reason, many people don't share the good news of Jesus. And so what I'm hoping this morning is that through this text, through seeing what's going on, through seeing a conversion of a pagan in the Old Testament take place, I pray that you and I will be reignited in our passion and our belief that the gospel really is good news and that God saves people through the gospel. And not only that, but that your joy in the Lord is not complete unless you share that good news with others. Remember, friends, good news also increases the joy that we ourselves have. So let me just give you a little bit of overall context for this passage. So Israel has been delivered out of Egypt. We've seen God send Moses back from Midian where he spent 40 years of his life. If you'll remember, Moses grew up in Egypt. He grew up in Pharaoh's house. At one day, he becomes aware of his, his position as a Israelite who is in the house of Pharaoh, and he takes it upon himself to try to save his people. 
And he does so in the flesh. And of course, it ends up being a failure. He kills an Egyptian. His Israelite brethren do not accept him. They look at him as one of the enemies. You're just an Egyptian. And so Moses flees for his life. And he spends 40 years in Midian. And he meets Jethro. And Jethro gives him his daughter to marry. And Jethro becomes Moses' father-in-law. And after 40 years there... God sends him back to Egypt to deliver his people. And of course, we all know the story of the 10 plagues where God is judging Egypt for what they were doing. And he was also judging and exposing their gods. He was exposing the gods of Egypt as false gods. So the 10 plagues have happened. Moses is leaving. They were going towards the Red Sea when all of a sudden, for some reason, God tells them to turn around and turn their back on the Red Sea and make it look like they're lost and they're wandering. This enticed Pharaoh, if you'll remember. So Pharaoh sends his chariots out to get them. This is where God makes the impossible possible. He opens up the Red Sea. Israel parts through. The Egyptians are tempted to do the same thing and cross, but then God sends the Red Sea back to crush them. But then we see all is not over. Israel's been delivered from the world. In Christian terms, they've been saved. And yet life does not end with salvation. In one sense, it's only beginning. We see that then God tests Israel. They go through difficult times. They lack water. They come upon a water source after being scared that they were going to die of thirst, but they can't drink the water because it's bitter. But then God turns the water into sweet water so they're able to drink. Then the next thing you know, Israel is hungry. They've run out of food. And God sends manna in the wilderness and he sends quail. And so he feeds them once again. And then once again, they're lacking water, and God provides them water again. And then finally, an enemy, the Amalekites, come and attack Israel, and God gives them victory. So we're given this picture that even though God has saved Israel out of Egypt, life is not over. And it doesn't mean that life in the Lord, that following God, is going to be one endless victory and just good times and no problems and no challenges and no trials and or anything like that. Rather, we see that God deliberately led his people into a wilderness and they would be tested there. So it's right after this battle with the Amalekites that we have this contrast. Rather than this conflict with a people group, we see a peaceful reunion between Moses and Jethro and the Midianites. So what I want to do today is look through these verses together, kind of verse by verse, and just talk about some of the various features of this text. And then I want to give you five points regarding evangelism that we can take away from this passage. So let's go ahead and just take a look at verse 1. It says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Again, so who is Jethro? Jethro is an extended family member of Moses. And from what we know of him, he was a pagan priest. He was not a Christian. He was not a follower of Yahweh. He was a pagan priest. And we see that that's his belief, and yet Moses has had a relationship with this man. 
He's had a relationship with him for 40 years, off and on. And so for us today, do we have any pagan friends, any pagan family members? And I would just encourage you, sometimes people grow discouraged and because they don't see them change, perhaps because it's been 40 years and you haven't seen your family member or friend change, we can give up hope. But already there's good news here because Moses has known Jethro for 40 years. And it's only now in this passage, which that relationship and everything that God was planning to do comes to fruition and Jethro comes to know the Lord. So he was a pagan priest of Midian. Now, apparently he had, listen, he had heard of all that God had done. Now, many times we forget that even in the ancient world, news could travel reasonably fast. Obviously, they didn't have computers or the internet or roads the, the way that we do today. But believe it or not, news could still travel relatively fast. We had caravans traveling back and forth from Egypt to uh, the places of the Midianites. We know that the Midianites knew what Egyptians looked like because when Moses first fled from Egypt and he went to the well where he met Jethro's daughter-in-laws, the daughters run back to Jethro and they say, an Egyptian saved us. So they, they had had interaction with Egypt. They probably traded with them. So you would have messengers, you would have soldiers, you would have scouts constantly going to and fro from Egypt into the Sinai regions and on up into Canaan. We've even found ancient texts that, that recognize there was actually a fair amount of political and social communication between Egypt and these Canaanite nations. So news still traveled relatively fast in the ancient world. And no doubt Jethro was listening to all these reports that are coming back because this is his son-in-law and his son-in-law's, his own daughter and his grandsons are there with him in Midian. Verse two, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. Now, this is an interesting text <clears throat> because on the basis of this language, some people have suggested that Moses was divorced from Zipporah. So the two reasons they state that are these. Uh, number one, the last time we saw Zipporah, Moses and her got into a fight. Do you remember that? Initially, when Moses got the call from God in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord spoke to him from the burning bush and sent him back to Israel. Originally, Moses is heading back with Zipporah. And then we have this strange account in Exodus 4, where all of a sudden it says God meets Moses to kill him. And the reason for that is because Moses has failed as the priest of his home. Moses has not circumcised his own son. He's been called to be a leader of the people, and Moses has failed in one of the most basic duties of a spiritual leader and of a spiritual father, and that was to circumcise his son. So Zipporah angrily, oh gosh, I hope she wasn't angry while she was doing it, but she was angry, and she circumcised her son and touched the foreskin to his feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And then that's the last we hear of her. So there was a fight, some kind of an argument, and, and Zipporah helped him. And then we don't hear anything about Zipporah until here, Exodus 18. 
And what we find out is Moses sent her back. So there was a parting of ways. Now, some people have pointed out that later in medieval times, this word uh, that's a form of the Hebrew verb shalach, this verb means to send back. And in medieval Hebrew, it could be used for divorce. And so on that basis, some people have said, we think Moses may have been divorced. Now, while I acknowledge that's a possibility, I don't think so. I think there's also another explanation as to what happened, and that would preclude Moses being divorced from Zipporah. Okay, number one, it may very well have been the case that when Moses is going to Egypt, that as he's approaching, he recognizes the seriousness of the mission. And he recognizes that this could be dangerous for his wife and child. And in that case, it makes sense that he sends her back. Furthermore, at this time in the Bible, this word for send back is not used. It does not seem to be used of divorce at this point. So it simply seems that Moses had sent back Zipporah and his two sons to be with Jethro. And probably, though we don't have all the information on this, probably Moses and Jethro arranged a time where they could reunite. We know that God told Moses before he left that one of the signs that the Lord was the one doing all of this is that the Lord would send Moses to Egypt, he would deliver his people, and he would come right back to this mountain, to Mount Sinai, also known as Horeb, and God would meet them there. So if God told Moses that in advance, it's quite possible that Moses told Jethro, look, I'm going down to Egypt, you know Egypt, they're a mighty powerful nation, most powerful on the planet at this point. You know my people, they're not soldiers, they're slaves. And I'm going in and I know God's told me what he's told me he's going to save, but I, I don't know, maybe that'll it won't work out, I'm not sure, but I'm going to go. And so he goes down and says, you keep my wife and kids. And when I come back, meet me here, meet me at Mount Sinai. So it seems that there was some prior arrangement between Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. Verse 3, and he sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So here in verse 3 is another, it's the third piece in the argument that Moses was divorced from Zipporah. Notice the text does not say, and his sons but rather her sons. And so some people point out that that's strange, especially in an ancient patriarchal culture, you would expect the text to say, and his sons, and Moses' sons. So the fact that it says her sons, Zipporah's sons, might indicate that they are indeed divorced. However, another argument against that is, although that is a good point, in a poly, a poly a polygamous polyamorous culture polygamous culture where it was widespread it was the most common form of marriage practice in the ancient world that in a polygamous world it would make sense to say her sons to indicate which mother which wife the children were with so in a polygamous culture it would actually make a lot of sense to say her sons as opposed to someone else's sons. We even see this in the patriarchs of Genesis. Was this Rachel's sons or Leah's sons? So we can have another answer there. 
Now notice he gives the name of the son Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Again, we've talked about the role of memory in the Bible, the role of memory in Christian uh, religion, in ancient Israelite religion. Memory is vital. Memory is vital. It is vital to knowing who God is and knowing who we are. One of the things that God keeps telling his people to do over and over and over again in the Old Testament is remember. Remember who I am. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from. Remember your circumstances. Remember how I saved you. Remember how I provided water when you thought you were going to die of thirst. Remember when you thought you were going to die of hunger and I provided food for you. Remember when again you still doubted me when you thirsted again and I provided water for you again. Remember when you had no training and no background in warfare and a, an armed group that knows how to fight the Amalekites came to fight you. Remember how I gave you the victory. Remember, 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 remember. Memory is everything. And so we see this reflected even in the naming of children. Many times nowadays in modern Western culture, we simply pick names that sound good. They just sound good to the ear. Oh, I, I like that name. Oh, that sounds like a cool name. That's a familiar name. But in the ancient world, names told a story. Names told a story. It was the idea that when you would call the name of your son, you would remember the context of, the, of their birth and what was going on. So notice how Moses thought of his life. There was a time in Moses' life where he thought of himself in this way. Gershom, for I have been a stranger in a foreign land. It's the idea that even though Moses had dwelt, he ended up dwelling in Midian for 40 years, he probably always felt like a stranger. This is not my land. I love these people, and, and I, I, I love my father-in-law, I think so. Uh, notice it doesn't mention his mother-in-law. He loves his father-in-law, and I love my wife, love my kids, but I'm a stranger. So he names his son Gershom, for he's a stranger in a strange land. But notice what it says later. Perhaps God was beginning to do something in Moses' heart. Perhaps he was rekindling his faith even before he appears to him in the burning bush. Let's go to verse 4. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So notice he goes from naming his son, I'm a stranger in a strange land to God is my helper. God is my helper. That's literally what it means. E-L or Eli, God, my God, Aetzer, helper. God is my helper. And he says specifically what he's referring to. The God of my father was my help and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now that's interesting. How did God deliver Moses from the sword of Pharaoh? From what we're told in the story, there was no miracles, there was no plague, there was no lightning bolts and thunder or earthquakes or, or famine or pestilence. From what we know, there was no supernatural act of deliverance at all. And yet notice, Moses still credits God with saving him. Friends, I think Moses has a different view of God and God's work in the world than many of us do today. Many modern Christians, they think it's only God's work when it's supernatural. 
When God does something that cannot be explained by modern science or natural phenomenon, oh, then it's God. But if the sun comes up, if a doctor is able to bring some healing in somebody's life and, and they're able to give you some medication that actually helps uh, to eliminate an infection or you find some great herbs that help you with your stomach issues or whatever, we, we tend to go, well, that's not God. I discovered that. You discovered that. My doctor discovered that. Man discovered that. We did that. Friends, that's actually not a biblical worldview. For Moses and the other writers of the Bible, all that is good comes from God. And that God works not just through supernatural means, but through the ordinary. What do we know about Moses' deliverance from Pharaoh and the sword? Well, this is referring back to when Moses killed the Egyptian and he had to flee for his life. All we know is that Moses got word that this thing was known that he killed. He got word that Pharaoh was going to kill him, and he ran, and he fled. And he simply took responsibility for what many of us would consider to be natural occurrences, and yet he believed in what we call the sovereignty and providence of God. Even when we're delivered, when we pray, Lord, heal this person, and whether that's supernaturally or natural, that's not a cop-out. That's biblical. Friends, it delights God to work through the natural means which he himself has created. It does not rob God of glory when he heals us through the use of doctors or through the use of medication or whether he provides for us through a job or through a friend or a family member loaning us some money when we're going through a hard time. That doesn't rob God of glory. The only thing that robs God of glory is our false belief that he doesn't deserve the glory for such things. So we see here that Moses has a right biblical worldview. That him simply receiving news and running and it, and it turns out he wasn't killed was as much God working in his life as the ten plagues that came from heaven. So we see a biblical worldview. And I think we're seeing a change in Moses' heart. Eliezer, God is my helper. Verse 5. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Again, how did Jethro know to go to the mountain of God, to Horeb, to Mount Sinai? Again, friends, this is where we don't have the exact biblical information, but it makes sense since Moses was told by God before he left for Egypt, before he left Midian and his father-in-law, that he would be coming back to Mount Sinai, it makes sense. It fits the evidence that he told him in advance. Verse 6. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. Again, sometimes people look at the Bible and, and they think it's such a strange book, but look, the same basic kinds of human relationships existed that you have friends and family, that you love them, that they're meaningful. And after you've been parted for a long time, what do you do when you get back together? You ask each other about your well-being. The word in the Hebrew, by the way, literally is shalom. 
they asked each other about their shalom. Again, the shalom was this sense of completeness, total well-being. They asked about their shalom. Verse 8, And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. So notice, Moses doesn't just talk about the weather. He doesn't just talk about sports and how the Dodgers are doing or how the Lakers are doing or whatnot. Not that there's any problem with that. And God can certainly use uh, conversations like that in evangelism. So I'm not knocking it. But what I want to make sure we don't do is keep our conversations at that level. We don't want to just talk about business. We don't just want to talk about, you know, finances and your house or whatever. That's fine. That's good. But we want to make sure we do what Moses did here. We share a report of what God is doing in our lives. Verse 9. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel and whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Again, the end of verse 11 is notoriously difficult for Hebrew translators, but it seems to be referring to something like poetic justice. It's the idea that in the very way that the gods of Egypt exalted themselves, so the gods of the, of the, of the Nile, of the sky, of the sun, of the moon, of all these things, God judged each and every one of their gods. In other words, in the very place where the gods of Egypt were boasting in their power, that is exactly where God exposed them. And of course, this is finally seen in the fact that just as Pharaoh had tried to drown all the Hebrew Israelite boys, so too God drowned Pharaoh's army in the end. So you see this poetic justice, and it points to God, and that's what Jethro seems to be speaking about. And lastly, in verse 12, then it says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, in just a moment, I want to give you five principles of evangelism. Five principles of evangelism. Remember, I'm suggesting you've been saved to share. You've been saved to share. And so what I'm hoping, again, is you'll be encouraged from this text. And these principles will help you. They'll aid you. They'll make you excited about wanting to go out and share the good news of God. But before I do that, I just want to reemphasize and make clear why I believe this is an evangelistic text. Now, it goes without saying that Moses has shared good news. It's more than clear that he shared good news about what God has done. But did Jethro convert? My answer is yes. Jethro is actually a convert. And besides the fact that many commentators, both ancient and modern, acknowledge that that's the case, let me point out three pieces of evidence here in this text, text that suggests Jethro was indeed a convert to the God of Israel. So, number one we see that Jethro confessed Yahweh 
as Lord of Lords. Number one, Jethro confesses Yahweh as Lord of Lords. Okay, so we already know Jethro was religious. He was he was a pagan, and, and the word El or Elohim, that's not just a Hebrew name. That's a very common Canaanite word for God. So sometimes when we see these characters, these pagan characters in the Old Testament, and they talk about God, it doesn't necessarily mean they're talking about Israel's God. It's a very common word. It could be, and context could determine that even the usage of El or Elohim means the God of Israel, but we should not assume that's always what it means. Uh, frequently, that's not what it means when it's in the mouth of a pagan. But what we see here is not that Jethro simply confesses in El or Elohim, because that could mean one of the gods he knows already. Rather, he specifically uses the Tetragrammaton, the divine name revealed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. He says, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods. He really confesses that Yahweh is Lord of Lords. Now, some people want to argue about the possible impurity of Jethro's theology. Um, now, it could be that when he's saying he's acknowledged that Yahweh is Lord of Lords, that he's recognized that all these other gods are false, though they might exist in people's minds. That's possible. On the other hand, it's possible his theology is not perfect, that perhaps he still has the idea that there are other gods, which of course is very, very common. Paul even refers to this in 1 Corinthians, that some of the pagan Gentiles at Corinth still were, were wrestling with the idea that there might be false gods out of there, and he talks to them about idols, and he says, you shouldn't worship idols, not that there are really gods, but I know some of you in your conscience, you still kind of think they are, so for conscience sake, don't eat meat offered to him. But the rest of you that know there's only one Lord, and there are no real false gods other than the ones you try to make for yourself, then you can receive the meat with thanksgiving as long as you're not stumbling anybody. So this idea, it's, it's possible that Jethro's theology is not perfect, but what we do know is he's receiving the light he's been given, and he confesses that Yahweh is Lord of Lords. Number two, Jethro understood and acted in belief of substitutionary atonement. Number two, Jethro understood and believed and acted in the belief of substitutionary atonement. And again, remember, friends, that's a very, very important concept in biblical religion, both the Old and the New Testament. And it basically is this in its most primitive form. It is the idea that someone or something needs to die so that I might live. Someone or something needs to die in order that I might live. And so you see this. So after Jethro confesses that Yahweh is Lord of Lords, there is no God like him. He's Lord of Lords. And then you see, notice this, <clears throat> verse 12, that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering. So remember, a burnt offering, there's a lot of kinds of offerings in the Old Testament. A burnt offering is an offering that is completely to God, and it is for sin, and so the offering is completely burned up. It goes all to God. But notice, in addition to that, he offers sacrifices. Now, the sacrifices are different than the burnt offering. The sacrifices, part of the sacrifice is offered to God. The rest is celebrated by the people of God. They enjoy it. They eat it. They partake of it as an act 
of worship. So notice that Jethro has this understanding that he is separated from God. He is separated from the holy. And that unless someone or something substitutes for him, dies in his place, that he can't have a relationship with God. And so he acts and he sacrifices, recognizing seemingly that he is a sinner and that God is holy and that a sacrifice, substitutionary atonement needs to take place. Thirdly, he shared a covenant meal with God's people in God's presence. Number three, he shared a covenant meal with God's people in God's presence. Look again at verse 12. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took the burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And now Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses and father-in-law before God. Notice that. So after offering this burnt sacrifice to God for his sins, understanding there must be substitutionary atonement. And friends, by the way, just to flesh this out, in case you think, oh, well, this is just a complete pagan idea of sacrifice being imported. No, friends, remember what happened. Moses told Jethro all the things that God had done. And what was the thing God commanded Israel to do on the night that the angel of death was going to pass through the land of Egypt? He told them to offer a Passover lamb and that the blood of the lamb would substitute for them and death would pass over them. So Jethro has this knowledge, not just generally, of substitutionary atonement, which is a remnant of, of their ancestors, Adam and Eve back in the garden, that substitution was necessary, but it's been fleshed out by revelation, by the idea that belief in substitutionary atonement, the blood of the lamb. And so he's offered this, and now notice this, that Aaron and Moses sit down together with the elders and they partake of it. The fact that Moses and Aaron and the elders share in this meal suggests that Jethro is becoming one of them. He is becoming a part of the covenant people of God. It's the idea of conversion, much like water baptism is a sign, not just of invisible inward faith, but identification with the Lord's visible church. And lastly, it says before God. It's actually in the presence of God. This probably is a reference to the altar, acknowledging the presence of God there around the altar. And so what I think we're seeing, friends, if we look at everything here, is that Moses had a pagan extended family member. And through the good news of what God had done for Moses and Moses' faithfulness to share that good news with someone in his family, with someone he had an ongoing relationship, we see that this pagan religious man is brought to saving faith in Israel's God. And so this is a beautiful picture. And friends, again, this was supposed to be Israel's vocation. They were supposed to share the good news of what God had done for them with the world. But what we saw in the Old Testament, friends, is over and over and over, Israel failed to be evangelists. They failed to share the good news of what God has done. And unfortunately, I'd say in many cases, the modern Christian church in America has not done any better. Again, there's a variety of reasons as to why. For some of us, again, we've been rejected. 
for some of us, we count the cost and we, we deem it too risky. Gosh, if I share with my coworker, I could lose my job or get ostracized. Gosh, if I share with my family member, my, my son or my daughter, my adult child, if I share with them, they might not talk to me anymore. So people are counting the cost of sharing the gospel and they are saying that the gospel is too risky. It's not worth doing. Other people, perhaps they've been taught wrongly. Many people do genuinely have the idea that evangelism is best left to the professionals. That what you need is a professional evangelist. Only a select few go and tell the good news of what God has done. Friends, that is patently false. As Christians, we are all evangelists. We have received God's saving grace. We have good news to share, and we are called to give good news. Remember, the Great Commission was not just for a select few. It was for all disciples. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do everything I taught you while I was with you. We are all sent. We are evangelists. We are to be sharing that good news. But again, friends, as I've said, whether it's sin we're simply being disobedient to what God has said. Perhaps we've been rejected, we've been hurt, we've grown tired. Perhaps we believe it doesn't matter. People are just not going to believe the world's going horrible and look at all this bad stuff and, and they're promoting all these sinful things and they'll never listen to me. What's the point? And so you give up belief in the power of the good news. Friends, whatever the reason is, if, if evangelism has become something that is not precious and joyful and life-giving to you, if you no longer see it as a part of your calling that you've been saved to share, I pray the Lord will encourage you as we go through these five points about evangelism. So number one, evangelism is a response to what God has done in your life. Number one. Evangelism is a response to what God has done in your life. Friends, evangelism is not like you, you get a little packet in the mail. It's got the good news written out for you. And it's a script and you just go and you have to read it to people and you tell people, but you don't really believe in it. You know, I've uh, somebody brought up the other day in our, our men's group that back in the day, long time ago, I, I worked for uh, the largest bank in the United States. I formerly worked for the largest bank in, in the United States. And again, there were good things about it. But I remember it was very difficult for me when I was supposed to offer these products to potential clients when I knew they were not good products. When I knew that our competitors had a much better deal for other people, when a sweet little old lady comes to me and says, oh, Mike, good to see you. Um, so this is what you're offering. Is that the best place for my money? And I know it's like, yes, the bank wants me to tell her that. But in my heart, I know it's not the best place. And she'd be better off going down the street to this to the credit union because they got you know better situation for her. I remember it was like it was not good news. I wasn't a good evangelist because to me it wasn't really good news. But friends, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, shouldn't be something that is just a script that's being forced on you that you yourself don't believe. Rather, evangelism is a response to what God has done in your life. So friends, we are not called to summon up anything. Evangelism begins with God. Evangelism begins with God. 
Notice this whole story, Exodus 18, 1 through 12. This isn't Moses trying you know, to, to get people to change religions or to tra change their morality. Rather, what made this whole story possible? What made this whole story possible was not what Moses did. It's not what Jethro did. It's not what anyone else was doing. It is what the Lord had done. The Lord had reached out. The Lord initiated. The Lord spoke. The Lord saved Israel with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And he brought them out. So it is God. Evangelism begins with what God is doing in the world. In evangelism, when we're sharing the good news, you're not trying to start something that God hasn't already started. Friends, it's simply a response to what God is already doing. Now, I can unpack this a little bit more because, of course, there's objective content. There are the things God has done in the past, the things God has done in the past, and you share those good things with people. The other thing we recognize when I say that evangelism is a response to what God is doing, hopefully this will encourage you. Sometimes you and I can feel like that we're the ones like bringing everything to the table. And until and then when we get there, when we go to share with somebody, you know, it's like they're a blank slate and, and God, the Holy Spirit's not already working in their life or whatever. But friends, I would encourage you, the Holy Spirit is already working on the hearts of the people in your life. Before you decide to evangelize, before you share a word, before you get over your resistance to share the gospel, God is already working in their lives. We know this because of what the Bible teaches about human nature. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that by virtue of being created in the image of God, man has an innate sense of God's reality. They may or may not know who God is specifically, that his name is the Lord, that it's Jesus, and the details of the Bible. But Romans 1 teaches us they know there's a God. And they have a conscience. And they're convicted about certain things. And so, friends, when you go to share for the first time with somebody, or you travel to a foreign country, and in your mind, oh, we're bringing this to them. Friends, the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist already at work in the world. He is already out there, so God is already evangelizing people. The Holy Spirit is already evangelizing your friends and your family members and your co-workers and your neighbors. So what we're doing is responding to what God is doing, what he's done in the past and what he's already doing in people's lives. And friends, I think if you believe that, it's encouraging. If you believe God is already working in your co-worker's life, in their heart, Rather than this belief, oh, they completely don't believe and I'm bringing them 100% of things they don't know. That's not true. When we recognize the Spirit is already working, they have a conscience, they're being convicted, and that false religion, false belief, including atheism and secularism, is their way of denying and substituting for the truth they already know. That's what the Bible teaches. So friends, number one, be encouraged. Evangelism is a response to what God has done in your life. Number two, evangelism often proceeds from ongoing relationships. Number two, evangelism often proceeds from ongoing relationships. Look again at verse one. 
And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done. So again, we have a picture here of a lifelong relationship. Now, it's true, there's times where you and I will be called, and we should bear witness, share the gospel with a complete stranger. Maybe a person, you're, you're only going to see them for five minutes or an hour, and that may be the last time you ever see them in your life. That definitely happens, so I don't want to close the door on the idea of sharing the gospel with a stranger, or for many people who do street evangelism, and I think it's a good experience. If you've never uh, done street evangelism before, it's, it's a good experience. Uh, but of course, in that case, many times, you'll be sharing with someone you'll have no ongoing relationship with. It's a stranger, you don't know them, you've never met them, especially if you go out of town or out of the county or out of the state or out of the country, you're probably never going to see that person again. So in that case, there's not an ongoing relationship. But friends, many times God is going to work. The good news is going to make its way through an ongoing relationship. I would even suggest that in American culture, this is perhaps even more important. Why is it even more important in modern Western culture for us to share the good news of Christ through ongoing relationships? I would say the main reason is that we are what they call a post-Christian nation. The United States is a post-Christian nation. And what I mean by that is this. The United States today is not a culture where Christianity has never arrived. It's never established itself. Nobody knows the Bible. Nobody knows the story of the Bible. And some other Pagan religion has dominated the scene for many, many years. The United States is the opposite. It's a nation that, again, people argue, was it a Christian nation? Well, let's, let's start with what we all know. It was founded by people who were members of Christian churches in a place where the dominant religion was Christianity, in the place where the book, Bible, the book, remember that's all the word Biblos means, because for all practical intents and purposes, the Bible was the only book. It was the book. It was the book used to educate children in schoolhouses. Truths from the Bible were used in the founding documents of the United States, and you certainly see it in the writings of many of of the founding fathers, and still it is one of the dominant, most practiced public religions in the United States. So you have this background of Christianity, but many people are rejecting it. We have more atheists than we've ever had. We've had more Muslims than we've ever had, more Hindus, more Buddhists, more every kind of other belief. And even those who identify as Christians don't believe in things that are actually essential to the gospel. Barna has done research where they've asked people, what religion are you? And the people that have asked Christian, they followed up and asked additional questions. Do you believe Jesus is God? And they're like, no, no, I don't believe that. And they're like, oh, uh, do you believe that uh, every uh, everyone will be saved? And, they, and no one will go, oh yeah, we believe everyone will be saved no matter what. It doesn't matter who they believe in. Well, friends, those are not Christian beliefs. And those are core Christian beliefs. So what we have is a post-Christian culture. We have a unique culture in which people have been exposed to Christianity and they've rejected it and they've become immune and calloused to it. So how do you break through a culture where Christianity has spread, it has been the dominant religion, but it is being rejected and it is being pushed out? 
I think one of the most important ways that that is going to happen, that effective evangelism is going to happen, is through ongoing relationships. One of the great quotes I've heard in relationship to evangelism is this. You and I need to build bridges of trust that can bear the weight of truth. We need to build bridges of trust that can bear the weight of truth. You see, Moses isn't just going to some random guy at, at the store. His name's Jethro. He says, hey, fellow, what's your name? Jethro, let me tell you about Jesus. This is a person he's had a relationship with for 40 years. He's known Jethro for 40 years. For 40 years, Jethro, as far as we know, has been a pagan. He's been a pagan. And some of us, if, if it's been 40 years, uh, we, we give up on people. But look what happens, friends. Moses has been in a relationship with Jethro. Jethro knows Moses. And there's probably a degree of, of trust and natural human affection and a sense of a bond that's been formed between them. So when Moses shares the good news, which, by the way, is threatening, because remember, he's a priest, for goodness sakes. Jethro is a priest. He's a pagan priest. And when you come and say, hey, my God is, is, is Lord of all the gods and yours aren't, that's threatening to people. And yet there's been a relationship of trust built that enables Moses to tell the truth about God. I believe that many of our biggest opportunities to share the faith are going to be with people you have an ongoing relationship with. So whether that's immediate family, extended family, people you've worked with for 20 or 30 years, maybe a neighbor you've lived next to for, for a year, or people you see wherever it is you go, friends, be thinking about the fact that God wants to use ongoing relationships where you build trust in order to give the good news of Jesus. Number three, evangelism involves the exposing of false gods and idols. Number three, evangelism involves the exposing of false gods and idols. Look at verse 11. Jethro says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they have behaved proudly, he was above them. So think about this, friends. Now, this can happen in a variety of ways. But however it happens, it must happen. In other words, when we share the gospel, there's when you share the good news, there's bad news, right? There's bad news that the way you're living is going to have to change, uh, that you're a sinner, that you're not right with God, that you can't be right with God through your own works. Um, these gods you believe in are false gods. Again, there, there's some bad news. However it happens, that's going to have to be exposed, we can't simply say, oh, hey, you, you worship a thousand gods here, add Yahweh, add Jesus, make it, make it a thousand and one. That's not going to work. What we always see in evangelism is that false gods and idols that people worship are exposed. Now, I do want to point out this can happen in different ways. Sometimes you are going to have to explicitly point out that the things people are living their lives for, that they're treating as God, that they're treating as ultimate, are ultimately false gods. Now, sometimes that's in the more traditional sense. If somebody is an idolater, maybe they're a Hindu and they, they literally uh, worship these, these little gods and household gods and things of that nature, and part of evangelism will be showing that those things really aren't God. 
We see that all the time in the Old Testament. God laments through the prophets, Israel, Israel, how can you worship things that you make with your hands that, that have eyes but can't see and ears that they can't hear? You're making these things. So you see the exposing of false gods. But perhaps in a modern Western context, people aren't religious. They're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm secular. I'm, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic and I don't do this. Friends, we have to remember that idols are idols, whether mental or metal. Idols are idols, whether mental or metal. In the modern world, it's not that we don't have false gods. It's just that we've rejected the superstition related to them. The idols that always were a projection of what people worshipped most in their hearts have simply been removed. So the gods and goddesses of money, sex, power, all these things are alive and well, perhaps even more so in modern American culture than ever before. Because in a sense, we're less honest about the power these things have over our lives. Many times we, we can call these addictions or, or whatever they are, but ultimately these are powers. These are things in our lives that we live for. And so sometimes we're going to have to point out, hey, if you're, if you're living like sex is everything, that's where your identity is, that's where your meaning and worth is, then you're worshiping a false god. You weren't made to, to worship that as God. Maybe it's money. You're just always talking about money, always worried about money, always obsessing about money, 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 money. It's all you ever think about. Money is God to you. They had a God for money back then. Maybe it's power. You you crave having the ability to control people, however it is, whether it's name-calling people so you can control them and scare them and intimidate them to not doing what you do, or or you have the money to sue them, so I'm going to scare you by suing the pants off you and, and threaten you, or I'm going to leave you, or I'm going to do whatever. They had gods for that. But again, for modern American people, it's not that they don't have the false gods. They've just removed the outward superstitious gods that reveal that's what's happening. So sometimes we're going to have to confront that as well as share the good news of Jesus. But I would like to point out there's another way, and often God does this. Sometimes life, circumstances, are such that the false nature of people's gods have already been exposed. Notice here that Moses didn't have to launch into a long treatise on how the gods that Jethro worshipped were false. Notice he didn't really have to say it. God had already shown to Jethro. He had shown through what he had done that his gods were not the true God. So sometimes in life, somebody who worshipped money when they lose it all, they realize money can't be God. Or if it is, it's a cruel and capricious God that is not going to be there for you. Sex. Some people worship sex like it's everything. And then you get a, a disease or or your your people aren't attracted to you anymore. Or they don't want or whatever the case might be. Or or the power. You had a position, you had power, you had prestige, and then your name became mud and you lost all your power and nobody respected you and you couldn't do anything anymore. Sometimes, friends, God is working in people's lives to already expose the false nature of these gods. And it's good for us to be aware of that. If that's the case, I don't have to always hammer home to such an extent the nature of that because God has shown that to them. But if it's the case sometimes where that hasn't been shown, then of course we will need to give some verbal content to show you, hey, these things cannot be your God. They cannot be your creator. They cannot be the reason that you ultimately live and are accountable to. Number four, 
Evangelism requires us to share who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done. Number four, evangelism requires us to share who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done. Look at verse eight. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done for Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. So again, notice that we do need to say who the Lord is to us. Now remember, when we talk about good news, we're, all, we're always talking about the good news of what God has done in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We're always pointing back to that objective content, what God did in history, that in Christ, God the Son took upon himself human flesh, lived a sinless and perfect life in our place where we have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. Then Jesus died the death on the cross that we were supposed to die because we have broken God's law, but he died in our place. That Jesus rose again from the dead, defeating the power not only of sin, but also of death. And he has ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, and he is giving the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him and promising us resurrection and eternal life. We're always pointing to that objective content. But friends, evangelism also includes bearing witness to the, how that truth, that objective truth of Jesus, that's the same for all of us same objective truth, yet how it has been subjectively experienced in your life. Where were you when Jesus saved you? You might not have been in the same place I was when Jesus saved me. What were your sins and temptations? What were your false gods? They may not have been the same as mine. What was it like when the Lord first saved you? That might not have been the same experience as me. What about what it's been like ever since? That may not be the same experience as me. Friends, evangelism is always pointing to the objective revelation of what God has done in Christ, but it also includes you and I sharing the good news of what God has done for me and for you personally. Tell someone what God has done for you. This is where I was. This was my condition. These were my sins. These were my failures. These are the pains I bore upon myself. These are the things I thought defined me. These are the things that, these were the chains that bound me. Friends, share those things and share how God moved mightily in your life. It's important we bear witness to who God is and that we share what he has done for us personally. Again, this is where just the script, you know, you can read books and things encouraging new evangelize, which is good, but at some point it can't be what someone else has written. It has to be what God has written in your heart. What is the good news about what Jesus has done for you? And lastly, number five, evangelism requires, evangelism is authenticated when we share our trials along the way. Number five, evangelism is authenticated when we share our trials along the way. Look again at verse eight and pay attention to the last half. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptian for Israel's sake. Okay, that's, that's where a lot of Christians stop in sharing good news, in evangelizing. They stop at, oh, you know, 40 years ago when I got saved, here was the situation, here's what happened. Listen to a part of Moses' evangelism, the last half of verse 8. 
and all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Friends, many people look at Christians as being inauthentic. And one of the ways that that happens is in the way we tell our testimony. Many people tell their testimony as though Christianity is just one long, endless victory in which we do not fail, we do not falter. It's just all blessings and joy and happiness and bliss, and there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no dark night of the soul, there, there, there's no grieving, there's no crying out to God, why, oh, why have you done this to me? Why have you forsaken me? Many times as Christians, we buy into the myth that if we share our struggles, if we share our trials, if we share in the words of Moses all the hardships that we've been through, that somehow that diminishes the good news of God. Friends, I think that's entirely false. By not only sharing how God saved us out of Egypt, but how also the armies of Pharaoh chased us to the Red Sea and we thought we were going to die. Sharing how we once we got into the wilderness, we ran out of water and we and we thought God was going to kill us and we doubted him, but he provided water. Then we thought God was going to starve us to death and we were and we were upset at him and then he provided food for us and then we ran out of water again and you would have thought we learned the first time that when we ran out of water, God would provide, but we didn't learn. We lacked faith. God provided again. And then the Amalekites came and we were scared of them because we weren't very good soldiers and hadn't been trained to fight. And then God gave us victory over them. Friends, it does not help the gospel advance when you hide the pains, the difficulties, the struggles, and the hardships of the Christian life. I think as a matter of fact, right now, our culture is craving authenticity craving authenticity. People now would rather have an imperfect hero than a perfect one. You know why? Because they know nobody's perfect. So somebody that presents themselves as perfect, they present Christianity as though, oh, it's just going to be one perfect life. If you accept Jesus now, all your problems will go away. You'll never have financial problems. You'll never get cancer. Your, your family will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, it's not true. And it does not, it is not authentic to hide those things. I see in reality TV, which is a very popular category of, of entertainment today, in reality TV, there's something people are craving. The idea that, oh, you know, even though they do edit reality shows, but it's the idea that it's less edited and scripted than a traditional movie. And people are craving that. They don't want to see an airbrushed model. Do you really look that way seven days a week? Or do you only look that way when you star yourself for a month and then you have somebody come in and airbrush your abs so you look like you have six-packs abs? More and more people are like, you know what? I don't want to see that. Just give me raw, real life. If Christianity is the way, then just tell me what it's really going to be like. Don't tell me it's going to be all easy and fine and all my problems will come away if I come to Jesus. Tell me what it's really like. And that's what Moses does. Moses tells Jethro all the hardships. Look, Jethro, God saved us with a mighty hand, but it wasn't easy. At first, things got worse. I went into Pharaoh and it all backfired. 
And he actually made it hard on my harder on our people than ever before and made it worse. And I felt bad and they were blaming me. It was awful. And then over and over and over, God kept doing these plagues. And I couldn't believe that Pharaoh wasn't going to repent at that time. And then finally he did. And then he allowed him to chase us again. And then we thought we were going to die. And then he saved us. And we thought we were going to die again. And then we thought we were going to die again. And then we thought we were going to die again. And he saved us. Friends, when we share our hardships... It actually builds a bridge of trust to other people. It's a bridge they believe it's real. Uh, my good friend Mike Wiseman had the idea to start a podcast called Standing Stones, and I'll be excited to share this with you as it develops. But part of the idea there is sharing these stories of what God has done, and not just in a perfect, polished, canned way where we only share the stories of triumph, but also the struggles and, and the failures and the pain and the scars and, and the dark nights where we felt like God wasn't there. Friends, that is all a part of evangelism. That is all a part of sharing the good news of what God has done. And it actually reaches people. It builds a bridge of trust that can bear the weight of truth. So while some may choose not to receive the invitation to believe in Jesus, friends, and I know that's one of the reasons some of you don't share, though some may not receive the invitation, I want to encourage you from this text today that there is a Jethro in your life. There might be a pagan priest of Midian, a father-in-law, a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law, an adult biological son or daughter. It could be a co-worker. It could be a colleague. It could be a neighbor. There's a Jethro in your life. Somebody you have an ongoing relationship with. And you have been called. You have been saved to share the good news of what God has done. And friends, remember, this is not just doing this for others. We're doing it for God. Evangelism is an act of worship. Not only are we doing it for the good of others, not only are we doing it to worship God, but friends, it makes your joy complete. We are evangelists by nature. Our joy is not full until we share the good news with others. So I want to encourage you today, be filled with the joy of the Lord by being obedient to the Lord to share the good news of Jesus, what he has done in your life with those who need it most. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now and we thank you and praise you that the good news of Jesus Christ was shared with us. Lord, I thank you for all those people in our lives over the years who were faithful, who did not hold back, who did not hide, who were not ashamed to share the good news of Jesus with us. Lord, many of us would literally not be here right now. We would not be listening to this message right now if somebody had not done the very thing we are being exhorted to do. Lord, I believe we have been saved to share. And so, Lord, I pray right now you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each one of my brothers and sisters. Fill them with the joy of the Lord and show them that that joy is not complete until they share that good news with others. Lord, we are worshiping you. We are acknowledging that you are God. We are extending the knowledge of you in the world by being obedient to share the good news of Jesus. Lord, we just pray for those Jethros in our lives, whether they're family members, 
whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues, whether it's neighbors, whoever it might be, Lord, those people you have put in our lives, Lord, we pray that we would use those relationships, that we would intentionally build those bridges of trust that can bear the weight of the truth of the gospel, that they, like Jethro, can know that this is not just a religious ploy that we're doing. This is not just about politics. This is not just about society. This is about a relationship with the living God. And so, Lord, I just pray you would pour out your spirit now and that you would use us this week to share the good news of Jesus so that our joy may complete that you would be glorified and those that are without hope in the world might receive the hope they've been waiting for their whole lives. I pray for this blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.